It is the journey, it is the process of the becoming that is the sacred thing. Isn't that why stories feel so miraculous? They cast such magical spells over us because they are enactments of becoming. And what we as humans know, kind of instinctually in our bones, is that becoming, the process of becoming, there's something holy or sacred about that. Exactly. So I guess, yeah, I guess we are just potential, really. We're just progress. That's, that's, a great, that's a great way of saying it. We are progress. We are potential. Whatever experience life, life gives, gives me will be an important part of that process of becoming. It's a great optimistic outlook on life. Hi, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Adam about the conclusion of Hermann Hesse's novel Siddhartha. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will help you harness the power of repetition. As always, I'd like to start with a quote about reading and writing. This is from the author Natalie Goldberg, who once wrote, If you read good books, when you write, good books will come out of you. Maybe it's not quite that easy, but if you want to learn something, go to the source. Dogen, a great Zen master, said, If you walk in the mist, you get wet. So just listen, read, and write. Little by little, you will come closer to what you need to say and express it through your voice. I love that a lot, especially the quote inside the quote from this Zen master, if you walk in the mist, you get wet. That's my approach to reading as a writer. Either actively or passively, I'm absorbing lessons on how to write from books that I love to read. So if you want to write well, make sure that you're reading great books. And if you want to write very well, make sure that you're reading a lot of great books. And for more on becoming the best version of yourself, and Buddhism, and writing, and reading, let's go into that conversation between me and Adam. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Adam. How are you? Hey, how about you? Good. Yeah, awesome. Uh, how's your semester unfolding? Uh, so far, so good. Uh, I have had some a little, a couple tough weeks, but for the most part, it's been pretty, pretty manageable. Tough weeks just because of normal school tough stuff or because of COVID or? No, yeah, mostly because of just the load of homework that I get from all the classes, but not, nothing too bad. Yeah. You've heard several of these recordings by now, so you kind of know the drill. I don't have a strict scaffolding or schedule or list of topics that I really, really want to cover. We can kind of take this discussion any direction you want. It's a little bit tricky for me to talk about the end of this book. I definitely want to know what, what if anything, you liked about this book. So your favorite parts or your favorite aspects. Mm-hmm. I'm so in love with how this book ends. And this wonderful, yeah. rapturous, epiphanic. It's unlike any other book I know. Um, it, I'm just always so moved and profoundly touched by the end. So... It's good. I, I hope, I mean, I'm a little bit worried that our chat will devolve into just a bunch of minutes of me wanting to read this and then wanting to read that and then wanting to read this out loud because 
There's so much in the end that I just find so beautiful and so wise and so profoundly moving. But Adam, I'll just ask you first, like what you liked most about this book and why. Yeah, I loved some things that I loved about the book. Number one, I loved the introspection. It was crazy. These, like you were saying, these insightful, really meaningful, like little bits of thought that Siddhartha passes through while he's like walking or just meditating or thinking or conversing with people. I love the reference to like how he attains his goals that he gets to Kamala. Yeah. Like a stone. He just sinks right towards it and everything gravitates around him. Yeah. I was like, that's a really good way of looking at it about setting goals. And it actually, it worked out because he attained all the goals that he wanted. And then he realized like, Oh wait, these aren't actually the goals that I would like to have. Yeah. But, But he got them. So it shows that it's a very effective way of getting what you want, even if it's not what you need. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing. I also love when he's, after he talks with the Buddha and he's walking and he realizes that everything around him isn't actually an illusion and that he shouldn't hold it in contempt just because it's not everything he sees. The same way that a reader doesn't hold the words in contempt just because the words aren't everything he understands, but rather right. than behind them. But you still need the words, otherwise you'll never get the meaning. I thought that was really cool too. It's really interesting. So I love these moments of introspection that they had throughout it that uh, the author Hesse that he wrote in is crazy. And uh, I actually read that it took him a very long time to write the second part of the novel, much longer than the first, because it's, it's and it's crazy. It's a lot of stuff happens and there's so much, but it all like, it becomes really meaningful by the end. It's like every little bit was necessary. And it's like an intricate puzzle to watch the plot come together towards the end. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's irony, there's symbolism, there's all sorts of stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm, I think maybe I once knew that it took him a long time to write the second half, but I guess I forgot. It's interesting to hear that, but it's not surprising to hear that either. I mean, the first half of the novel is a little bit, I don't want to say conventional, but it's not necessarily the most surprising story. You know, Mm -hmm. the first half, a young boy grows up, wants to kind of go away and experience the world. He tries this religious tradition he tries becoming a man of the world. He tries falling in love and gratifying the senses. He tries getting rich. He tries getting poor. None of these things seem ultimately fulfilling or meaningful for him. And he still feels like there's some kind of dissatisfaction with life that he needs to solve. So he keeps moving and he keeps searching. That's not necessarily the most surprising thing, but it is remarkable. And maybe we should like save these, some of these moments for the end of our chat where the novel gets to and, mm-hmm. and and exactly how, I hate the word profound, exactly how insightful or illuminating mm-hmm. what Siddhartha realizes. Yeah, crazy. You know, I think that's really interesting. So yeah, maybe we'll talk about, since we're kind of talking about plot without talking about plot, mm-hmm. talking about how the, how the book is structured as a series, as a journey of a series of steps from one thing to another thing to another thing. We talked about this a little bit in the last podcast and just how, I mean, and maybe I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this too. Do you feel, thinking about Siddhartha at the beginning of the book, do you feel that this resonates with you that, I'm assuming, it, you know, there's something that you can relate to in terms of Siddhartha's home life and the desire to go beyond it, no matter how good it was, no matter how safe it was, no matter how loving it was. Mm-hmm. Did you feel the need, you know, as a young man to say goodbye to that and yeah i just want you to describe if you had one a similar kind of craving for experience yeah definitely like i think almost everyone does right because 
as humans, we're naturally dependent, but then we become independent. And our goal is to learn how to become interdependent as we grow up. And so like, but like when we're younger, we think that independence is everything you need. So like, we just want to go out and do stuff. And that's what Siddhartha also thought when he was younger. And he was very stubborn and insistent on that. I love how he just stood there in protest to his father for like a day and a half or however yeah, long. Yeah, yeah. But that was a very meaningful moment to me. Like in the first part of the book, I was like, whoa, that's really cool. And, you know, those are the kind of moments that I just love in writing. Like when there's something that's like original, but also archetypal at the same time. And it gives you like a balance so you can like ground it in context. You understand what it means. And it's really just packed with like this, this significance. But at the same time, it's really original. So you feel like you've never seen this before. It's like, it's worth, you want to find out what's going to happen next. And just by balancing those two things out, it's amazing to, to read. And that was one of my favorite parts in the first part of the novel was that part right there. You've said a couple of really interesting things there that deserve elaboration. I think <clears throat> the first is that, yeah, he, he does have this wonderful journey from dependence as this kid at home, this, then this craving for independence. And then I think you're right. By the time he, the novel ends, he sees himself as one drop, one component, one part of this larger oneness. Mm-hmm. So interdependence might be the best word. And he sees that oneness as this kind of timeless, eternal, never-ending thing that isn't ever lost. You also say a wonderful thing about archetypes. I I wasn't preparing to talk about archetypes, but we probably should. What is an archetype, Adam? (laughs) This is like a put-you-on-the-spot question, but do you want to elaborate? Like, what what do you mean by that? Yeah, so like archetypes in my kind of like grounding it in both what I've read on literature, like literature. narrative archetypes and then like also psychological archetypes they're basically just like these images or characters or symbols or anything that we can like relate to something bigger like for example like in the king arthur story the dragon is an archetype of chaos so like any kind of big scary dangerous animal it's like that's grounded in our evolutionary history as like it signifies chaos and death and suffering and sorrow and so like the belly of the beast the belly of the whale that's all the same archetype where it's like the scary unknown that we have to step into and overcome. And then like the pot of gold that the dragon guards or whatever, like in the Hobbit, like all that wealth, that's like the reward that we get for going into the unknown and shaping it, order and balance to it. And so like, that's another archetype. And then like, there are the more simplified ones, like the mentor character, which almost every story has. And then like the protagonist, antagonist, the hero, villain, that kind of stuff. So like, there's all sorts of, there's all types. And like the one, in, I guess, in that example where Siddhartha is just standing there is like the defiant youth that is still very wise for his age and really wants something. And like, that's something that a lot of youth like to see themselves as like, I know I'm young, but I'm pretty smart and I'm wise and I know what I'm doing. And so like, it was really cool to see that even though he ended up finding out that he did not know what he was doing. (laughs) It was still really cool to see how convinced he was that he was right and how far he was willing to take that. That's right. just inspiring, you know? So like reading that's just really cool. That's great. And we could add to our list of narrative archetypes the the archetype. So archetypes can be people, they can be objects, they can be entities, but they can also be types of plots. Sure. So you could say the quest is an archetype or the journey. Love story. Or, li- or love, yeah, the love story. Or a stranger enters town, like a strange figure enters town as a kind of archetypal story. Yeah life life is a road the journey of life as a road is a very familiar archetypal story 
I mean, that's, that's, yeah, the Lord of the Rings kind of takes on that, that, I mean, that's why there are many successful road trip movies, you know? So I think that Siddhartha falls into that arc. I mean, it falls into several, the defiant youth, as you say, and also the mentor figure. He goes from mentor to mentor to mentor. Um, but I, I think that maybe one of the most overarching, over-governing archetypes of this book is life as a road or life as a journey. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say road, maybe I should say river, you know, to, to, to foreshadow how this book ends. But it definitely, I wasn't planning on talking about this, which is great, because that's why I want to do these conversations, because we, we can get, you know, more people's ideas than just mine. But as a writer, it's important to be aware of archetypes, because it's hard to tell a story without tapping into them. There are there are only so many basic types of stories. Yeah, you know? nothing new under the sun. No, that's exactly right. There's nothing new under the sun. So there's the hero slays monster story. There's the two people fall in love story. Usually their parents are against it. You know, that's a very familiar ingredient in that story. There's the dark, mysterious stranger enters town. So we have to be aware of these archetypes, but what risks are involved when we tell stories that we know are archetypal? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What could go What could go wrong for a fiction writer, even if he or she knows archetypes, even though we can't escape telling archetypal stories? Mm-hmm. What are some risks that we should be aware of and try to avoid? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think, first of all, the biggest risk that anyone runs whenever they're writing a story and, and like, it doesn't matter if you call it an archetypal story or not, it's probably going to end up pretty similar to one we can already like judge it against. That's right. Biggest risk is definitely cliche, you okay. know, using tropes to the point where it's like, oh, I've seen this before. And then you like, you lose your audience engagement, your reader engagement. And so people then just like emotionally, they detach from the story because they recognize it's too familiar. Yeah. So that's what I said like that the things are so great about Siddhartha and other books and movies that are really well done is that, they're so they mix those archetypes with a lot of originality thing and like they bring them in new ways that we haven't seen before like and so by mixing those two things the originality with the universality we really like get a balance and it's just really cool because we're like okay i think i know where this is going but it could go anywhere so i want to keep reading just just to see if i'm right yeah i think you're totally right and if you know the story of the buddha I mean, you read on the back of this Dover Thrift Edition that it's highly inspired. It's got very striking parallels, this novel, with the story of the Buddha and the Buddha's and the Buddha's own coming of age. So, uh-huh. so, so Herman Hesse is kind of riffing off an old, very old and very, very familiar religious story. But he's adding characters. Kamala becomes this kind of three-dimensional character. Siddhartha has a son who's very petulant and stubborn. Um, and the character of Govinda comes back and forth and the ferryman. And so we have all of these very particularized details that are not the same in other stories. And yet the kind of basic, yeah, archetypal movement of the story is familiar. So I think you're totally right. Even if you sense that the type of story you're telling has been told a thousand times before, first of all, don't worry, like Adam says, there's nothing new under the sun. It's going to be almost impossible for you to invent new ways that humans can interact. Don't feel like you're obligated to do that, but you are obligated to make these human interactions seem more particularized and textured, particular faces, particular names, particular textures and details. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. So um, yeah, okay, so we've both felt this need to kind of go out and get experience. You're here at BYU, you're getting some experience. Let's keep talking about this kind of 
life as a road archetype or life as a journey, if you think about that archetype, but what are other archetypal stories like this? What are other stories that you can think of that have the life as a road or life as a journey model where the, there's a traveler who has to go out? Yeah. Well, I mean, Star Trek, I mean, it's not really Star Trek or Star Wars because it's not like a linear path. But even like if you go deep enough, they are kind of the same because every story really is a journey story. Even love stories, it's the same thing. It's either externally or internally. I'm somewhere that I don't want to be. Okay. There's some, there's an ideal that I want to reach. And that's not just in storytelling. That's actually in our own thinking in our lives because we live in stories. We think in stories. We're interested in stories. When we listen to songs, music, we're actually listening to a story. And so like, it's always, yeah. everything is a story for us actually. So we're always like, I'm here, but things can be better. I'm trying to get there. This is my struggle. And so we're always like the, our own um, heroes in a way. We, we, this is so great. So we're always in the story. We're both living the life as a, as a road archetype and more or less every book that we read is this, even if it's not a physical journey, mm-hmm. a journey into the unknown, a journey into some kind of new experience, a journey into a relationship, a journey into self-discovery. Exactly. This is great. So Siddhartha wants this, Siddhartha wants that, and it's always kind of three steps ahead of him. Mm-hmm. You wanted to come to BYU. I'm assuming that after you graduate from BYU, you want a job, then a family, then a house. I mean, not necessarily in this order. Um, You want stuff, right? Imagine 10 years from now, you have a great job, you have a house, you have a family. What are you, are those like the top, top, top goals? And think about Siddhartha, like, what do you actually want? I'm now making this personal. And you, you can say pass if this question is too personal. But do you imagine in 10 years when you have those things that you'll stop, this archetypal journey will be over? Will no. there be a new thing that comes onto the horizon for you? Yeah, what do you want as a human being in the world? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, first of all, we are, we are aiming creatures, so we're always trying to get something. And once we get it, we immediately shift our focus. Like, we might be grateful or happy for a little bit. So true. Like, immediately shift our focus. Like, what's the next thing? And like, we act like that's a bad thing, but there's nothing wrong with that. That's just, that's really like good because it's a survival mechanism, but it also helps us to attain a lot more than we could if we were just content with everything all the time. But we, we have to be appreciative at the same time. Gratitude is obviously a necessary principle. We have to take some time to relax and appreciate how far we've come, everything we've done, everything we have now. But yeah, like we were grounded in a story that we can't escape and we have to play the part. We get to choose how we play the part, but we're always there. So we can either be like the victimized protagonist that doesn't do anything, doesn't get anything, doesn't achieve anything, can't do anything about his circumstances. But nobody really wants to be like that. Most people don't, at least. Yeah. They want to be the proactive protagonist that goes out and gets what they want. And so we strive for new goals all the time, even if we don't consciously set them like, oh, by this time next year, I want this, this and that. Even if we don't don't, like consciously set that out, we're still subconsciously aiming for that. And so like... That actually goes back into like storytelling is we love storytelling a lot. I think in person, this is just a personal theory because like it, it hits, it strikes a balance between our conscious brain. That's always thinking what, like, what should I do next? What should I do now? And after that, what will I do? And then our subconscious that just wants and gives us feeling and everything and like the emotional connections and stuff. So like a story is a brilliant, like middle ground between that. Yeah. As a human being, like what will you want when, in 10 years from now, you have everything that you want right now. 
Yeah, exactly. Like once I get it, I'll probably just have other goals. I'll be appreciative, I hope, of everything that I will have attained. But yeah, like I was saying, like these stories, they're, they're, they stick in our brains for a reason. Three little pigs, <laughs> all these stories, like they have a lesson that's really clear, but they also like, because they're so archetypal and original and because they just personify our own, we see ourselves in those characters, we empathize with them. So like we see our own journey in theirs. And so like we want stuff always, we're constantly, we desire and there's always obstacles in our way and we struggle to overcome those obstacles and that's the conflict. And then we either get what we wanted or we don't, or we get it in a way we didn't expect. So like there's a resolution and then it's our next, the next part of our story. It's like, hey, let's move on. Now I need this, that, I want that. This is so great. It, I mean, my son, and I, it's, it's so related to Siddhartha. People listening might think, they're not talking about the book. We so are talking about the book. My son, he's eight. He just turned eight. And he has one of the worst cases I've ever seen of the grass is greener syndrome. He's the sweetest kid, super bright, super curious, extra kind. But he, he, he always assumes that his happiness is just one more discovery or adventure or pet or microscope away. You know, I have a microscope, but what I, what I really need to be happy is a telescope. Or I have a turtle, but what I really need to be happy is also a snake. So he's constantly wanting. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I totally think that you're right, Adam, that that's a good thing, that it will, it is one of the attributes of humans that makes us able to achieve so much. But on the other hand, the other half of my brain thinks, isn't there a role to play for just like contentment? I mean, you say gratitude and you're absolutely being appreciative. That's totally true. But are you telling me that you think that we're all doomed to live lives until we're a hundred, until we're dead of wanting, 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 wanting? I mean, is there no achieving the ultimate goal, capital T, capital U, capital G, no attaining the ultimate goal ever? Yeah, well, that's a great question as well. I think that honestly, the ultimate goal would probably be to have the perfect life, right? Because as long as our lives aren't perfect, there's always something that could be better about them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't think we'll ever reach, at least in this life, right, the, the ultimate goal. But at the same time, you're definitely right that, like I said, gratitude, like you said, contentment, definitely that is something that we need to, as we, I think as we get closer to death, we need to come more and more to terms with the fact that that's something necessary and that like our stories, at least in the mortal context, are, they can definitely be very happy, but at the end, like there's always something missing and that's okay. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to get everything. We just have to get um, the things that are most important to us and just treasure those and be content with those. And yeah, like always we got to have a drive because, you know, when you lose your motivation, kind of lose your purpose and you lose your purpose, like, why are you even alive? You know? So it's a balance between contentment and just like drive to go get more, be more, become better, do better. Yeah. Because we all could recognize the pathological version of that drive to be more, do better. I mean, you, you don't want to be a workaholic. You don't want to be addicted to, you know, attaining worldly status. You know what I mean? How does Siddhartha, this sounds like a stupid essay question. It's, I'm not, it's not meant to put you on the spot, but I feel like Siddhartha, there's constantly something else that he wants out of life. Mm -hmm. It's not asceticism with the Samanas. It's not the teachings of the Buddha. It's not love with Kamala. It's not the riches of worldly, you know, wealth. What is it? What does he want? 
and how does he get it? So how does he find this balance is my question. The question is, and it's a question for both of us, not only you. The question is, how does Siddhartha escape this pathological version of wanting, wanting, seeking, seeking, but also still hold himself to a standard of attainment and gratitude and does this make sense? Yeah, I, I think I, I think I can understand your question. You're asking how does he like because he's always wanting stuff and it never makes him happy. And so, how does he finally, in the end, like learn like how to become exactly? Happy? Yeah. So, I think that what he really did is that he, through getting everything he wanted and then realizing that it wasn't what he actually wanted, what he really did was he learned to discern between his wants and his needs. You know, like once we can consciously choose, like, oh, I want that, I want that. Like we can't give ourselves the desire to want it. That's something that just we're naturally inclined or disinclined to want every single thing on earth. Yeah. But like need is something much more universal and fundamental, I'd say. So like it's deep in our psyche. It's something that we need extremely badly. And even if we don't consciously recognize it, it might manifest itself in desires that we don't actually need. But we're trying to just like conceptualize and understand why do I not feel fulfilled? Why do I not feel everything that I want to be feeling. And I think that's kind of what happened to Siddhartha throughout the novel is like, I wanted to try this. I want to try this. I want to try this. Cause like what he really wanted was just meaning and peace. I think more than anything, he wanted peace and enlightenment. Yeah. So um, he finally discovered that, but I really believe that had he not pursued all those other things that he wanted, he never would have discovered it. If he didn't really like rise in like his self-control and then completely lose it all and then relearn it he might not have ever actually developed into what he became at the end of the novel. The word I think to put on what you're describing is experience. He, he didn't, so he, he has certain, you're right to distinguish this difference between needs and wants. Mm -hmm. And we all know the difference. I mean, most of us know Um, sometimes we get those confused, but mostly we know the difference between needs and wants. I would put into the category of need, the concept of experience. Definitely. I think it's a need that humans have like food and water and shelter experience. I mean, maybe it's not all the way in that box. You technically wouldn't die without it, but your soul would be dead. Do you know what I mean? I think that's that driving innate thing in our brain that wakes up in our late adolescence and tells our bodies go out into the world. There's something out in the world that you need like food or like water. And I think the word for that is experience. That's what our bodies are telling us we need. We need experiences. And there's this wonderful moment on page 53 of the book. It's one of those moments that you mentioned about introspection. And he's just thinking to himself. It's the second, I guess it's the first full paragraph on page 53. He says, it is good, he thought, to taste for yourself everything you need to know. That worldly pleasures and wealth are not good things I learned even as a child. I knew it for a long time, but only now I have experienced it. And now I know it. I know it not only because I remember hearing it, but with my eyes, with my heart, with my stomach. And it is good for me to know it. So that's part of this process of attaining balance, I think, and and attaining this late life, midlife, late life contentment and gratitude and peace. I think you need to experience the hard way. Yeah, you're told as a kid in primary, you know, or in school, uh, wealth, you can't you can't buy love, you know, you can't buy happiness. Yeah. And you technically believe it. It's not that kids or teenagers don't believe when they hear this, but they just like it's it's something in their bodies, like 
their bodies need to find out on their own that this is true. So I think experience, Siddhartha had to go get experience. None of this novel could have happened. None of the epiphanies at the end of the book could have been achieved if Siddhartha had stayed at home. Mm, Definitely. So he realizes that he wants experience. And then he realizes that there's no such thing as time. So the epiphanies even get more and more profound. So he's talking with Vasudeva, the, the, um, the ferryman, that's right. And Siddhartha one time stares at the river long enough to discover that there is no such thing as time. And at first this feels like a kind of particularly Buddhist epiphany, but it's not really. I'm now going to read this little chunk on page 58. Mm. The very top of page 58, this is Vasudeva talking. Yes, Siddhartha, he said, surely this is what you really mean, that the river is everywhere at once, at its source and at its mouth, at the waterfall, at the ferry, at the rapids, at the sea, in the mountains, everywhere at the same time, and that it possesses only a present without any shadow of a future. That is it, said Siddhartha. And when I had learned that, I looked at my life and it too was a river. And Siddhartha the boy was separated from Siddhartha the man and from Siddhartha the old man, merely by shadows, not by anything real. Moreover, Siddhartha's prior births did not constitute a past, and his death and his return to Brahma were not a future. There was nothing, there will be nothing. Everything is. Everything has substantiality and presence. Don't think about the past. Don't think about the future. There is only what is. I hear the voice of, I have, I have this mild case of anxiety. It's, it's a mild to moderate case of social anxiety, which means that I sometimes seek the help of therapists to just help me, you know, like talk to people. Yeah. I don't really like talking to people I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, teaching for some weird reason is an exception to this. But I've learned, you know, this, there, there, there's this technique called cognitive behavior therapy, and it involves a lot of mindful meditation and mindfulness mm-hmm. training. And if you, I, I, I'm not by any means a master at this, but if you can ignore that stupid thing you said at the party yesterday that you think made you look like a fool, mm-hmm. if you can ignore that scary meeting that you have tomorrow in which you have to look smart, mm-hmm. just focus on what is, not what was, not what will be, just what is. This sandwich, for example, you know, mm-hmm. eating this sandwich for lunch, you know, there is only this sandwich. Man, if you can get into that mindset, it can be some of the most transcendently sandwichy, beautiful, tasty experiences ever. Do you know what I mean? Like you're fully present with that moment. Mm-hmm. Every single present moment is a miracle. And we only have present moments. There's two epiphanies in this moment. We don't have the past. We don't have the future. We only have present moments. And they're each miraculous and worthy of our attention. I Yeah, I totally agree. I think that here it seems, right, like that he's escaping that thing I was talking about earlier where, like, you're where you are and it's not where you want to be. And there's an ideal that you have to reach out in the future, which definitely is not always true, right? Like, at, here he's learned that just doing that constantly actually makes you miserable and that's very true it's kind of like the grass is always greener syndrome right if you just that's all you think about is what's the next what's the next what's the next without appreciating anything then you're definitely gonna fall into that despair and that that fall from grace that even Siddhartha himself fell through earlier when he went through his cycle of love and wealth and then like realized that it was actually just lust and greed yeah but 
Definitely. At the same time, though, like there, there's a balance because like if we only think about the present without any forethought or any learning from the past, we're just going to ba- be bound to make the same mistakes that we made in the past, and we're going to be uh, completely clueless about what to do in the future. And like biologically, we're not <laughs> wired that way. That's why we feel hunger before we actually starve. It's like just a warning. Like, hey, orient yourself, get some food, and then you can get back to being in the moment. But okay. yeah. This is great. So there's this wonder, we, we, we need to combine this long-term thinking, this long-term ambition with, so like some um, occasional check-ins with our long-term goals, mm-hmm. but for the most part, so that we know where we're moving, but for the most part, really? don't ignore yeah. where we are. You yeah, know, don't exactly. ignore where we are. Because that way you'll have lived a life without living a life. Mm-hmm. You know, because you'll be like, your mind will be over there, but you're actually here right now. You're right here right now. Exactly. Yeah. No one wants to watch like a spy thriller where in the middle of the gunfight, the spy stops and starts writing down his long-term goals. <laughs> like, we love being engaged in the moment, but we want a general direction of where we're going. And even Siddhartha here, it took him a long time to realize that. But yeah, he, like he wants to achieve enlightenment and he realizes that it's by focusing on the present that he can reach his long-term goal. And you don't want to ever look at the face of your children or anyone that you love, really. Like, think of somebody that you love. This is a mental, this is a thought exercise you can do at home. All you have to do is think of a person that you love. You don't want to ever look at their face and think, oh, well, you'll really be the person I love in five years when X and Y happens. Or when when we've been married for 10 years, or if it's a child, you know, when you're a teenager or when you're an adult, it's like, no, this person as they are right now is a miracle. Definitely. Is in some way perfect, you know, mm-hmm. can be unconditionally loved mm-hmm. as they are without forcing them to change. I worry this is kind of long, but it's so, it's kind of too beautiful. It's kind of long. This is page 72. Mm-hmm. So this is on page 72 and I kind of want to read it. It kind of goes on to page 73 I don't really know if I want to make any comments or if I have any questions. I just think this is so gorgeous. So there's still him, he, Siddhartha and Vasudeva are still by the river talking. So first full paragraph on page 72. When he had talked himself out, Vasudeva turned his friendly, somewhat weakened eyes toward him. He did not speak, but silently radiated love and serenity in his direction, understanding and knowledge. He took Siddhartha's hand, led him to the seat by the riverbank, sat down with him and smiled at the river. You have heard it laugh, he said, but you have not heard everything. Listen, let us listen. You will hear more. They listened. The many-voiced song of the river resounded gently. Siddhartha looked into the water, and in the moving water, images appeared to him. His father appeared, lonely, lamenting for his son. He himself appeared, lonely, he too bound to his faraway son with the bonds of longing. His son appeared, he too, the boy, lonely, raging with desire on the fiery path of his youthful wishes. Each one had his eyes on his own goal. Each one was obsessed with the goal. Each one was suffering. The river sang with a voice of suffering. It sang yearningly. It flowed toward its goal longingly. Its voice had a lamenting sound. Do you hear? asked Vasudeva's silent eyes. Siddhartha nodded. Listen harder, Vasudeva whispered. Siddhartha strove to listen harder. His father's image, his own image, his son's image dissolved into one another. Kamala's image too appeared and dissolved, and Govinda's image and other images and overflowed into one another. They all became part of the river. As river, they all pressed towards their goal. 
yearningly, greedingly, and suffering. And the river's voice was full of longing, full of smarting pain, full of unquenchable desire. The river pressed toward its goal. Siddhartha saw it hastening. That river composed of himself and his loved ones and all the people he had ever seen. All the waves and waters hastened in their suffering towards goals, many goals. The waterfall, the lake, the rapids, the sea, and all the goals were attained, and each was followed by a new one. And the water turned into vapor and rose into the sky. It turned into rain and poured down from the sky. It turned into a fountain, into a brook, into a river. It pressed onward again. It flowed again. But the yearning voice had changed. It was still resounding, full of sorrow, searchingly, but other voices were joining it. Voices of joy and sorrow, good and evil voices, laughing and mournful ones, a hundred voices, a thousand voices. I'm going to read one more paragraph. I know this is long, but I think it, it's, worth, it's worth it. Yeah. Siddhartha listened. He was now all tears, completely absorbed in his listening, completely empty, completely receptive. He felt that he had now learned all there was to learn about listening. He had often heard all this before, these many voices in the river, but today it sounded new. By this time, he... By this, by this time, he could no longer distinguish the many voices, could not tell the gleeful ones from the weeping ones, the children's voices from the grown men's. They all blended together, the lament of longing and the knowing man's laughter, the cry of anger and the moans of the dying. It was all one. It was all interwoven and knotted together, interconnected in a thousand ways. And all of this together, all the voices, all the goals, all the longing, all the suffering, all the pleasure, all the good and evil, all of this together was the world. All of this together was the river of events, the music of life. And whenever Siddhartha listened attentively to that river, that song of a thousand voices, when he listened neither to the sorrow nor the laughter, when he tied his soul not to any individual voice, entering into it with his, his self, but instead heard them all, perceiving the totality, the oneness, then that great song of a thousand voices consisted of a single word, which was Om the absolute <clears throat> sorry to go on so long but i just find this so beautiful oh yeah again we might think it's it's a uniquely buddhist epiphany but it is a u universally human one i think mm -hmm. as you say we all have we go through these phases we desire to be dependent we desire to be independent but we're actually all interdependent mm -hmm. we're all part of this one thing just while we were reading it, it was kind of revelatory. It kind of brought everything we talked about kind of full circle. Because yeah. it was talking about, like you were saying, like the dependence, independence, interdependence, the wanting yeah. versus like the needing. And just how even after the river attains a goal, its goal, it just keeps going and going and going after other goals. But at the same time, it, like it says, it was still resounding full of sorrow, but also other voices were joining it, voices of joy good and evil laughing and mournful a hundred voices a thousand voices so like it's getting better apparently as it keeps going <laughs> but it just keeps going it never stops and so it's like it's crazy it's a beautiful metaphor and i think you know i don't want to have to translate this into christian terms because i think herman hesse presents them in sufficiently universally human terms mm -hmm. but there are christian analogs you know when or Judeo-Christian analogs, when God creates the world and looks on creation and pronounces it very good, he's looking on one thing. He's looking at, the, you know, the universe. He's looking at the world. He's looking at creation and saying, that thing is good. And that thing is what Siddhartha is describing in this river passage. That thing contains all things. It's, it's like one universal totality that 
we should feel thrilled to be a part of, I think. Definitely. How beautiful is it when Govinda, his friend, comes back and oh. looks into Siddhartha's face and notices that, oh, you're just this old weird ferryman, but there's something about your face that is, you've reached your destination. Govinda can kind of tell, you know, you've attained wisdom. And Govinda asks him, like, I haven't. I'm still searching. Siddhartha, can you please tell me what is your teaching? Tell me something that will help me on my path. Mm-hmm. And Siddhartha says, I have no teaching. And Govinda says, well, that can't be true. You must have a teaching. And yeah, that is, kind of isn't true. Siddhartha says these wonderful things about rocks, you know. So I'm now on page 76. Siddhartha, I'm now like maybe below halfway on page 76. I'm in the middle of a paragraph. Okay. Because we are subject to illusion, it does actually look as if time were something real. Time is not real, Govinda. I have learned that over and over again. And if time is not real, the span that seems to exist between world and eternity, between sorrow and bliss, between evil and good is also an illusion. How so, Govinda asked nervously. (laughs) It's a wonderful addition, nervously. eh? (laughs) Pay close attention, dear friend. Pay close attention. A sinner, such as you and I are, is a sinner. But someday he will be Brahma again. Someday he will attain nirvana. He will be a Buddha. But now see, that someday is an illusion. It is only a metaphor. The sinner is not journeying toward Buddhahood. He is not caught up in an evolution, even though our thought processes are unable to imagine things differently. No, the sinner contains the future Buddha. Now and today, he is already that Buddha. His future is already completely there. You must revere the becoming, the possible, the concealed Buddha in him in yourself, in everyone. The world, friend Govinda, is not imperfect or on a slow journey towards perfection. No, it is perfect at every moment. This is just so beautiful, right? And again, Christians believe that all humans are children of God, right? And that all aspects of creation are imbued with something divine. So I think, again, that Hesa, Siddhartha, the Buddha, whatever, wherever this wisdom came from, it is universally applicable. Every major world religion kind of teaches this principle in different ways. Just like how there's constant like imperfection, but in the eternal scheme of things, it's really just, it's pretty small when you consider all things considered. Just like our lives seem like a lot to us. And then we get old and we're like, wow, that went by fast. (laughs) And then we realize like that was actually nothing in the eternal scheme of things. That's right. And so that's right. Yeah. Like we're, we're always, but like time is pretty much an illusion. It, it definitely is. Even in like um, Latter-day Saint theology, like it says, like all is as a single day unto God. So yeah. our conception of time definitely is in not exactly how it is. But I find that so interesting that he criticizes our conception of time and then goes on to say that the universe is completely perfect. So, but we're in the universe. So like, are we perfect then if our perceptions of time aren't? It's such an interesting question to worry, wonder about. But like, I guess you can just overthink it and like get into too many contradictions. Well, I think we're perfect. Perfect doesn't have to mean omnipotent or omniscient. Yeah, he picks up this. I have so much to say in response to that great comment, Adam. But so the first thing maybe is to refer to us, refer us to this passage where he picks up the stone. This is just later on page 77. Mm-hmm. Siddhartha stooped down, picked up a stone from the ground, weighed it in his hand. This, he said effortlessly, as if at play, is a stone. And within a certain time, it will perhaps be earth. And from earth, it will become a plant or an animal or a person. 
Now, in the past, I would have said, this stone is merely a stone. It is worthless. It belongs to the world of Maya. But because in the cycle of transformations, it may also become a person and an intellect, I assign it some value. I assign some value even to it. That is how I might once have reasoned. But today I think this is a stone. It is also an animal. It is also a god. It is also Buddha. I do not revere and love it because it might someday become one thing or another, but because it has for a long time always been everything. And it is precisely the fact of its being a stone, of its appearing to me as a stone now and today, that makes me love it and see value and meaning in each of its veins and cavities, in the yellow, in the gray, in its hardness, in the rings, in the ring it emits when I strike it, in the dryness or moistness of its surface. So being perfect doesn't mean that we're suddenly some kind of super actualized godlike superhero, you know? Being perfect means that you are what you are. Uh, and I think in a, in a weird way, Siddhartha learns, he does kind of come in a circle where the way that he changes as a character is that he, he doesn't become stronger, richer, faster, better. He has one insight or two or three, but the biggest one is that he was at the very beginning of this book already perfect. He was already, to use you know Christian terms, a child of God. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? He didn't need to become, a stone doesn't need to become something better in order for us to love it. Yeah. I just I think that's so great. It's so wonderful. It's so mm-hmm. profound. I don't know why I love that so much. And also, I think Siddhartha realizes, he, 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 we do kind of come full circle in our discussion, this balance. We've been talking about the balance of being content with what we are now mm-hmm. and wanting to become better. And here on the bottom of 76, Siddhartha says, yeah, the sinner has a, has a Buddha inside of him. His future is already completely there. You must revere the becoming, the possible, the concealed Buddha in him. So life is a process of becoming. And I think like what I hope I learn and what I hope my son learns is that it's not about acquiring a new pet snake to make you happy. You know, it's not about acquiring a degree, a college degree to make you happy. Those things aren't really destinations. The, I mean, it's hard to talk about this without falling into cliches, but it is the journey. It is the process of the becoming that is the sacred thing. Mm-hmm. There's no destination that's sacred. It's this whole, that's why, okay, to take us full circle, Adam, and then I'll shut up, I promise. That's why stories are so great. Isn't that why, why stories feel so miraculous they cast such magical spells over us because they are enactments of becoming yeah and what we as humans know kind of instinctually in our bones is that becoming the process of becoming not the final product but the process of becoming there's something holy or sacred about that mm-hmm. yeah it's awesome no, yeah I, I agree like it's so interesting just to compare because like as he says, he talks about how we're constantly becoming and also how we're also like, we're not becoming anything. We're kind of just always. We always are that. Yeah, exactly. So I guess, yeah, I guess we are just potential really. We're just progress. That's, that's a great, that's a great way of saying it. We are progress. We are potential. Yeah. Um, And Siddhartha learns like, I'll just go where the river takes me, you know, and whatever experience life, life gives, gives me will be an important part of that process of becoming. 
It's a great optimistic outlook on life. It's so great. It's so great. We didn't talk about dialogue enough. Maybe we have a couple more minutes. I hate to kind of end on an anticlimactic kind of technical note, but you know what? Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll talk about dialogue in a future podcast. I can I can offload that to a future discussion because I think this is probably a better way to end. Oh, okay. Unless you have other things to say about this book, other comments about it, what it taught you about writing, what it taught you about living in the world as a human. I think everything we talked about kind of was what I got from it. And also I got a lot just from listening to you, which is great. Oh, yeah, I just I like listening to people, I think, is a big skill that I also realized is super important when I read this book, because like Mm. you should always assume that the people you're talking to know things that you don't and that you can learn from them. So it's great to actually see that in action because I learned a lot with you today. So Well, no, vice versa. I mean, I think that the opposite is absolutely true. Like, that's why I do these podcasts. I chose to make these conversations with with you guys as opposed to stupid monologues, because first of all, monologues are horrible to listen to, but also because I knew I would be confronted with ideas, thoughts, realizations, insights that I never would have been able to come up with on my own, for sure. I mean, this whole thing about archetypes, you know, I mean, I knew that archetypes were a thing, but I never connected them to this book. Process of becoming, aspiring goals. I mean, all of this is a great, it's a conversation, you know, this, not to get too kind of corny or pedantic or annoying, but the river, the, the river of Om, you know, the one perfect oneness yeah. is better with as many voices as possible. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. So no, thank you for coming to this conversation. So prepared. I, I appreciate great. it. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, it's great. Have a great day. See you, see you around. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for the writing prompt portion of the class, and and the inspiration for this writing prompt is based on that wonderful paragraph at the very end of this book. I'll read a little bit of it. This is page 80. This is what happens when Govinda looks into Siddhartha's face for the last time. He no longer saw his friend Siddhartha's face. In its place he saw other faces, many of them a long series, a flowing river of faces, hundreds, thousands, all of them are rising and dissolving, and yet all seeming to be there at the same time. They all constantly changed and renewed themselves, and yet were all Siddhartha. He saw the face of a fish, a carp, its mouth open in infinite pain, a dying fish with eyes glazing over. He saw the face of a newborn child, red and full of wrinkles, distorted in weeping. He saw the face of a murderer, saw him plunge a knife into someone's body, In the same second he saw that criminal bound and kneeling, and his head being cut off by the executioner with the stroke of a sword. He saw the bodies of men and women naked in the positions and battles of furious love. He saw corpses stretched out, quiet, cold, empty. He saw heads of animals, of boars, of crocodiles, of elephants, of bulls, of birds. He saw gods, saw Krishna, saw Agni. He saw all these forms and faces interrelating in a thousand ways, each form helping the other, loving it, hating it, annihilating it, giving birth to it again. The paragraph goes on. I think this is a great example of the power that a piece of writing can achieve, the kind of crescendo that you can arrive at, simply if you know how to use repetition well. There's lots of forms of repetition in this paragraph, 
First of all, there's a kind of list quality to this paragraph. So certain things are listed. He saw the face of this and the face of that. So types of faces are listed, types of animals are listed, types of bodies are listed. Lists, even though each individual item is a new item, are a form of repetition. So he's piling on item after item and making this huge climactic list. So that's one form of repetition. Another form of repetition is called anaphora, and it is the use of the same word or phrase to begin successive sentences or clauses. So he saw, he saw, he saw, he saw over and over again, or he saw the face of, he saw the face of, he saw the face of. Uh, there is another example of it down here, of crocodiles, of elephants, of birds, of bulls, so just simply the word of. There's another type of repetition. It, it has another fancy rhetorical name that I can't remember right now, but it's the repetition of the same word or phrase at the end of the successive clauses or sentences. Here you have an example of it, loving it, hating it, annihilating it, giving birth to it. Right, so there's a little sub-list inside this larger list in which each, each of those items ends with the same word. The word it is being repeated. I could go on. There's maybe four or five, six different forms of repetition. I haven't even talked about sound repetition, things like alliteration. There could be four or five or six different types of repetition happening here in this, in this paragraph. And I think it's in large part the reason why this paragraph seems so climactic and stereoscopic and grand. The whole world seems to fit here in this paragraph. The writing prompt is simply to try this for yourself. Think of a moment in your story or your novel when the character is experiencing something equally dynamic or vivid or important, when a moment in the novel when the drama is particularly high, perhaps your character is undergoing some kind of epiphany. Try to write a longish paragraph using as many of these forms of repetition as you can, repeating different items in a list, beginning successive clauses with, or sentences with the same word, ending successive clauses or sentences with the same word, throw in some alliteration, use long sentences, and I think that you'll find that this really can increase the amount of energy a passage of writing can have. And for the poem of the day, I'd like to continue this mini theme of repetition and, sh and to show you and to show you the power that sonic repetition has to evoke all kinds of goosebumps. This poem is called We Real Cool, and it's by Gwendolyn Brooks. We Real Cool, the pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We Real Cool. We left school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin. We thin gin. We jazz June. We die soon. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. The next one will be between me and a couple of you about H.P. Lovecraft's novella At the Mountain of Madness. I'm excited about that. In the meantime, keep reading, keep wandering through that mist, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to be a great writer. Mm -hmm.